Welcome to The Afterglow. The Afterglow podcast gives women, we're talking to you, the permission and tools to live life according to your own rules. Yes, this is a platform to educate and empower women identifying humans through intriguing conversations with courageous Canadian women who are breaking down limiting beliefs and outdated rules. These women have done it, are doing it, or can provide tools for you to do the same. We are Julie Watson and Liz Doyle-Harmer. And we started Afterglow, our yoga studio, after years of staying home to raise kids. Now, as podcasters, we want to help others do the same. Step into your own power. It's time to shake things up and get real about who you are and what you want. The Afterglow is your next act. It's what came after you did what you were told and instead decided to do what was in your heart. It's how you have reinvented yourself. It's your vision for the next 40 to 50 years. It's when you took your power back. Once again, we're thrilled to announce that this episode is sponsored by The Richards Group. We are in love with the people from the Richards Group. They're such a family-oriented organization. And a couple of things I wanted to mention just beyond being the most incredible real estate agency is that the Richards Group has made a lifelong commitment to supporting and giving back. So in schools, youth sports, community events, hospitals, and organizations in needs, in need, they are always there and hands down one of the most generous companies that we've ever worked with. Thank you, the Richards Group, for supporting the Afterglow. On today's episode, we're super excited to host our friends, Karen Cleveland and Michelle Bilodeau, who are co-authors of the new wedding book, A Guide to Ditching All the Rules. Together in this book, they inspire couples to plan their wedding in a way that is meaningful to them. They debunk the manufactured traditions, advocate for realistic budgets, offer brilliant advice from real-life couples, and confront the crushing pressure for weddings to be perfect. So not only is this book good for people who are looking to get married, but it's also a really good book to find insight on where some of these traditions come from and, you know, perhaps offer some advice to others who are looking to get married and what you want for your future. So I also want to just introduce each of them to you. Michelle Bilodeau is a writer and editor. Her work has appeared in CBC Life, Fashion Magazine, The Kit, Refinery29, Flair, and Canadian Living. She is a green beauty expert on the social and is a psychotherapist in training through the Ontario Psychotherapy and Counseling Program. Michelle lives in Toronto with her family. Karen Cleveland, my neighbor, has contributed to the New York Times, Wedding Bells, Today's Bride, Fashion Magazine, The Kit, Huffington Post, Toronto Star, and The National Post. She also lives in Toronto with her family. Welcome to both of you. But well, here we are. Here we are. We're going to talk about the success of putting out a book. Oh, wow. Amazing. It's a huge feat. First book for both of you, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 So tell us about it. Like five years in the making. Yeah. And then COVID hits right as you're about to launch it. Yeah. And then you have to go and do a bunch of like re-edits for it. Is that what yeah. happened? Yeah, sort of like, yeah, we've been working on this for five years. I was pregnant with my daughter when we first started. Um, but the, the impetus really was like when we both got married almost seven years ago now. So Karen, uh, and her partner got married six weeks before my husband and I, um, so it, it was really like in the lead up to the wedding and post wedding that like, we would just get together and just bitch about the wedding industrial complex. And one thing that we like, really notice is like, okay, we're in our mid thirties. We have a mortgage, we have careers. Why are people all of a sudden telling us what to do? Why is the wedding industry all of a sudden telling us how to do our weddings, how to do anything? We have all these like prescribed things that we have to do because just because we're getting married and it just didn't really vibe with who we were as women. And, and it didn't vibe like with our feminist like perspectives as well. So it was a really like disconnect. And then Karen and I were just like, maybe we need to modernize things. Maybe we need to, you know, like sit down and, and write a book and yeah, that's kind of how so it started. What about and here we did. feminist, <laughs> what did you call it? The, 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 the wedding complex, wedding industrial, yeah. what, what, what that's is right. that? 
the wedding industrial complex, not unlike when you hear like the military industrial complex, uh, is a massive industry that exists to serve itself. Um, so that's sort of like, I guess, like a socioeconomic term that could be applied to lots of things in life, but in the context of weddings, uh, which is central to the thesis of our book, is that there's this monolith industry worth billions, and that's billions with a B a year, um, that relies on people to feed that machine. So couples in general, but women in particular, are really left holding the bag on that, and they're marketed to. Um, and this fantasy is marketed to women that if your wedding is like this, you'll have this experience. Um, and how that really shakes out is that when it speaks to women and Michelle and I, this is what we really sort of got tight on the idea of the book. It's assumed that from the time you're engaged, you're going to be obsessed with your wedding, right? Like the assumption is that you, you eat, sleep and breathe your wedding. And that, that comes with the sacrifice of stepping away from your values. So if you are, as Michelle and I are, we identify enthusiastically as feminists, you're supposed to park some of those sensibilities. Or if you really care about the environment, you're not really supposed to ask uncomfortable questions about the sustainability of your wedding. Or likewise, if you're an astute budgeter, the assumption is you're just gonna blow the bank on your wedding because that's what, that's what you do, right? This sort of discourse. Um, so that was at the core of it. And then the more we got into it and we spoke with other couples, like there was almost this like, confessional element that other women would be like yeah me too or I really hated that uh, I was expected to diet or transform my appearance to be a bride or that my husband was just supposed to show up or for our friends that are in same-sex couples they didn't see themselves represented at all so we realized it was this really narrow lens that felt out of date and out of touch and we wanted to challenge those ways of thinking so here you are these two strong women in your 30s right and very progressive and feminist in a lot of different ways, but you're feeling this pushback from this wedding industrial complex, which is sending you back to like the 1950s. So you wanna help women, you know, navigate that. And I'm curious how you navigated it in your own weddings, but I'm, I'm also wondering if we have to even start sooner, you know, with the messages that are planted mm -hmm. with little girls who thankfully are not seeing Sleeping Beauty anymore, right? They're seeing Moana, but do we need to start even earlier? And is that changing? I, I definitely think it's changing. And I think, I mean, to take it back to our weddings, I learned from my mistakes. Like I, my wedding I thought was amazing, but I made some mistakes in that, that made me feel icky. Um, and that's why Karen and I really wanted to pick away at this idea of the perfect wedding, um, and really just get back to it being about the couple and representing the couple representing who they are together and what they want their marriage to be like even. Um, but yeah, I a hundred percent agree that it should start sooner. I have a daughter, so it's, you know, it's something I think about often where I don't want to put pressure on her to adhere to to, you know, this heteronormative standard of what a big white Western wedding can be. And, you know, she's four and she's already told me she wants to marry one of her male friends. And she's already told me she wants to marry one of her female friends. And I'm like, cool. If they want to marry you. Awesome. When you're older, <laughs> have at it. <laughs> I love that. And I would add to that too, like this deep conditioning that you brought up, Liz, that clearly it starts so young, but it's so dangerously pervasive. And we, you know, yes, young girls are marketed too. And I see these memes of um, little girls looking in the mirror, like dressing up in their mother's wedding dress. And those are loaded images uh, that we could do, I'm sure an entire episode too. But that message is, uh, that message never goes away. So when you're flipping through magazines that are still on newsstands now or reading things online about like how to get him to propose, right? Like that's still part of propping up this narrative that for women, your worth is tied to your marital status. And the reality is that in a lot of countries, marriage is an institution that affords incredible access and no other institution gets the respect that marriage does. So there was a time when women relied on our marital status to be citizens. Um, we couldn't hold property. We certainly couldn't have bank accounts. We couldn't have credit cards. Um, but there's these nasty hangovers from some of these ideas that I think still pervade how women think about their self-esteem and their worth. And that is steeped in everything from how we get engaged, this totally manufactured tradition that a man proposes to you with a diamond ring because this is how valuable you are, through to those customs and weddings, like the notion of being given away, wearing a veil. And Michelle and I, are, like we're unabashed romantics. We love weddings. 
we're totally all for if you want your father to walk you down the aisle and give you a way that's beautiful, if that's meaningful for you. But we really want women to understand these customs before they just go along with them and participate in them without understanding what's underpinning them. Well, I like how you are not just saying don't have a wedding because, you know, we're modern women, but it's more about like, let's debunk these myths or traditions and educate people right on, on where these ideas came from. So, you know, there's the idea that, um, you know, way back when a, a woman was second, third, fourth, fifth class citizen. And so she could not get a credit card. She had no, you know, value in the world. So she was, she did need her husband for like economic support. Right. Um, you know, some of the other traditions that um, exist in weddings, like the father giving the bride away. I love how you said um, in the book that part of it was, you know, the, the, the father giving the bride away to the husband, but also it had to be the father coming in contact with the husband so that no other man could get in the way too. So tell us about some of these, like, you know, I mean, the research that you did to learn more about where these historical, you know, archaic ideas come from um, that we still sort of cater to and abide by. Uh, we went deep on research. So we had like our, basically we knew what we wanted this book to say, and then it took us another two years of really exhaustive research to, uh, to explore that anthropological underpinning of weddings. So definitely like um, those are two huge components of weddings that we take for granted, the father giving away the bride uh, because she would have been part of a transaction as part of that wedding. Uh, but also that ensured her purity that she went right from her father's hand to her new husband's hand. Uh, so when you, when you put that into a modern context, you're like, WTF, what? <laughs> like it doesn't play anymore. It doesn't square. Um, so that was an example of something that like, wait, we're not okay with that. Uh, similarly wearing veils, like we consider the custom of, in the context of a white Western wedding, wearing a veil as being a beautiful accessory. And it's something that adds to the bride's attire. Uh, when in reality, that's a holdover from a custom when a bride may not have wanted to be at a wedding or may not have known she was even going to her own wedding, as a matter of fact. Uh, and she would have been unveiled to meet her then husband uh, so who couldn't refuse her. That is angering. That? That's yeah. angering. Yeah. Right? Just hearing that, like I'm angry now. Totally. Right? Why yeah. would we? And Liz, wait for it. Yeah. Like it's even, she was veiled. So in case her husband didn't approve of how she looked, he couldn't back out at the 12th hour. How dark is that? Right? Awesome. And yet we, we romanticize these beautiful 15 foot mm. veils and, and how they make you look and the elegance of them. And there's no denying that um, brides are spectacles. They're things to look at. And that is a through line throughout the book and everything from how women are told they need to diet, do the bullshit bridal boot camps that we're not here for. Oh, that everything. I love how you were like another barf, because for me, that was like, that's just so gross. Okay. Yeah. Tell, tell us about the grossest thing, which is the, um, around the leg. What do the ladies wear around the leg? Garter. Oh, the garter. Oh, the garter. Oh, oh my God. God. Tell us about the garter. Cause even just the term that you used, I just was like, what? Yeah. I don't know if garter belts are still a thing. I think they are, but you know, we're also coming at this from the perspective we're all for urban downtown women. So I think weddings in big cities might look still a little bit different from weddings in small towns. Um, but garters, the tradition of wearing a garter was that the bride was so lucky. So people at the wedding would fight literally to get a piece of her. So people would rip off items of her clothing and, um, and the garter is sort of like the pentacle of her luckiness and of her virginity. So you would like fight. It's, it sounds really vulgar and it is uh, to get that. So the, how that tradition is now manifested over the centuries is, you know, the awkward guy dancing around a bride in a chair using his teeth to pull a garter off his leg while everyone pretends that this is totally normal behavior, which it's not. Mm. Um, and really sensationalizes again, uh, her purity. Like this is, there's this obsession, I think with weddings and we don't want to be total buzzkills, right? Like the, the book we think is actually like a good time read and there's some good, interesting, fun pieces to it, but we're really, we're cautious of things that we've normalized that are anything but normal. And that's one that is totally not okay. Like there's an obsession with women's sexuality and their purity. 
Uh, and there's an obsession with women's thinness and how they look. Mm-hmm. And those are two things that we're really, um, we're coming after. And when you educate women about these traditions, a lot of them archaic, then, you know, they can make an informed decision. Do I want to perpetuate this or not? You know, does this, you know, just with some awareness, this is actually where this tradition comes from. And how do I feel about that rather than just blindly, you know, following suit and doing what everyone else does? That's right. Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly it. Like if my dad had been alive when I got married, my dad unfortunately died a year and a half before I got married he 100% would have walked me down the aisle, even knowing what I know now, because I did have a special relationship with my father. So of course I would want him to walk me down the aisle, but at least I would know where this tradition is coming from and make it my own. It was important to me because of our relationship. Um, yeah. So there definitely are aspects of that. Like just, just really learning where this stuff comes from, I think is empowering in its own right. And then you make an informed decision. You're not just blindly mm-hmm. going into this because your mom told you, your dad, you know, someone in your family told you, your friend told you, society's telling you, social media is telling you, like you're making these decisions for yourself. And I think that's the biggest thesis of this book mm-hmm. is that we really want people to do things for themselves and nobody else. Yeah, I really got that sense that, it wasn't like you're coming down on the sort of white rich wedding per se, but you want to educate people so that then they can, you know, make their in, informed choice. You've said you do you a lot throughout the book, which I think is mm-hmm. a really good message, right? Like that's what, that's all we want. And you're not doing you if you don't know really what that is. If you've just sort of looked at a magazine, right? Or look on social media, which is, I don't know how, I mean, I got married 21 years ago. So like, I don't know how I would have survived social Mm -hmm. media at the time when I was already really into like, I couldn't wait to buy the bride magazine at the time and Mm. look at the different floral arrangements and stuff like that. And so people getting all caught up. How do you think social media has now impacted the sort of bride and wedding craze? Oh my. Um, unfortunately it's, I, it has had this crazy impact in the fact that people now are obsessed with picture perfect weddings, picture perfect, perfect engagements. Um, and it's more about posting something online for likes and attention than it is for having that moment between just you and your partner. Um, I have a girlfriend who recently got engaged And she waited over a week to post anything about it online because she wanted to savor it with her partner, get it out to all of her close family and friends. I was, you know, one of the people that she messaged a couple of days after it happened. Um, But it was, I think, important to them that it was a moment where they had it just for themselves, because as soon as it's out there into the world, you know, we're always, as women, we're always bombarded with these stereotypes and these, this advice from other people. The minute you're married, like the minute you're engaged, the minute you're pregnant, you're getting all this unsolicited advice, advice and information. So unfortunately with social media, that also means algorithms. So the minute you start subscribing or liking typical kind of bridal fare, that's all that's going to start popping up into your feed. So really, you know, we've, we've advocated for people to really just be mindful of the vibe they want to set for their own wedding. And if that's not the white Western ideal, then don't go looking for those kind of bridal accounts and images, try to steer towards maybe art, fashion, design, something that's more your vibe so that you're not inundated with all of this, you know, unhealthy kind of imagery. That's not your vibe anyway. That's a good lesson for anything that you're doing, right? (laughs) Because what we know is like, you can be talking to a friend about like getting new glasses. And then the next moment you've got all these, you know, new glasses on your Instagram and where Mm -hmm. to shop for. So that's actually a good, a good lesson there. Karen, what did you have to say about that? I enthusiastically agree. This idea of uh, really putting yourself on a, like a strict diet of what you consume because social media normalizes things that we otherwise wouldn't have exposure to. So everything down to body imagery, of course, and how women are presented. Uh, but when we're consuming these photos and we're flipping through our feeds, how much of them are airbrushed? How much of those weddings are 
sponsored, for example, right? Like you don't get to see what goes on behind the scenes and yet we consume those images and assume that they're totally normal. The other thing that I think is really um, bears some attention is that those images become deeply homogenized. So I don't know about you, but I, I love the diversity that we live in Toronto where thank God everyone can marry whomever they want. And that's not only tolerated, it's like celebrated here. It's a huge point of pride. Um, yet I don't see that represented in the wedding discourse. Mm. Like I really still see that uh, young, fit, heterosexual, cisgendered, able-bodied, um, gorgeous couple being typified and really held up as this is what, you know, a, this is what a wedding looks like. And that's problematic for a lot of reasons. So we, in the book, we came across, um, when we were doing a research, this really brilliant woman's work from South Africa, forgive me, I'm blanking on her name, Dr. Lindani Mamani, I, I believe. Um, and she looks at how in South Africa, there's traditional black weddings. And then of course, the influence of the big white Western wedding. And part of her research is she looks at um, reality TV show, like the equivalent in South Africa, I guess, which would be um, Say Yes to the Dress, like these shows that really like hype back weddings and, and commercialize them. And found out that the airtime that traditional black weddings get is literally a fraction than the airtime devoted to like shopping for the big white gown and like how is people's hair being processed versus wearing that versus wearing their hair naturally. And it really speaks to this like process of assimilation. So not to get too bossy or didactic, but like what I really hope couples take away from this is when you're consuming those wedding images or when you're like thinking about your plans to really ask yourself who benefits from this? Like who is, who's benefiting from this socially, culturally and economically? Because to look at our divorce rates across North America, it's certainly not couples. Like we're doubling down on weddings yet um, the success of our marriages are sort of holding steady. And yet I think the cost of weddings has doubled in uh, five to eight years. So the wedding machine is like erasing all these other cultures. Yeah. Yeah. I think for billions and billions of dollars a year. I think there's something too about, um, you know, after they, after someone reads your book, they might say, well, I don't want these traditionally patriarchal, um, you know, uh, traditions in my wedding and they might plan something different, but I think that picture perfect Pinterest pressure is different. You can still, you know, go to the farm or, or, and get married or go to the beach or whatever it is, but still have this pressure to make it perfect, you know, and it seems like it's two different, two different things you're addressing when you speak about the influence of social media and how it can really just start to um, infect the way you're looking at things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah when you look, when you look at like how the wedding industrial complex survives, it is that pressure. It's that pressure on couples to conform. So it's, you know, it comes from all, like so many different areas. Like I mentioned earlier, family, friends, society, and social media. Like that's a lot of pressure to be putting on newly engaged couples. It just is. Yeah. And it's sad because I think for couples who don't have the sort of um, the lens or perspective, like we're, we're all at a certain stage of our life where we're sometimes looking in the rear view mirror at things, but um, a girl that I, uh, I know from my small town, who's like 24 years old and got engaged. I saw through, I think my mom told me about it on Facebook or something, but that's pretty young to be confronting all of these whopping pressures. Um, and the financial implications from weddings are no joke. Like Michelle was talking about this new show that just launched, uh, marriage. Have you guys heard of it? Marriage or mortgage? No. Oh my God. I just oh saw marriage or mortgage. It, it just came out on Netflix. Which, which yes. do you choose? Yeah. Well, so I mean, idea, we like, definitely couple... have opinions. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> big, big opinions. No, but there's yeah. like, we're now at, at a place societally where we are just acknowledging that. Yep. For young people starting out their lives, you can have a great wedding or you can buy a home in which to live. And the fact that like that's being not trivialized, but at least maybe we can call it sensationalized if there's a show about mm -hmm. it, that's deeply problematic. Like we're not setting people up for long-term successful financial planning if that's the message that couples are getting. Uh, and I, financial literacy with women is a huge thing for me. So I'm, I am really uncomfortable with that discourse. 
One of the things you talk about in your book is um, the word betrothed and the word fiance at the root of both those words is, is trust, right? And so in a lot of time, what you're talking, what you're also talking about is not sacrificing the marriage for the wedding. And so how can we use that engagement period to really secure and build that period of trust with each other? Yeah, great question. We, um, we talk about communication a lot in the book and how we think engagements can really bode well for the future of your relationship and your marriage. And not that it's ever a guarantee, um, but if you are able to be honest and open and communicate with your partner, especially around finances, like we know, as Karen was saying, like financial literacy for women is certainly lacking. Um, and it's really an important education piece, but also intergenerationally, like we have issues with money. Our grandparents went through the depression. Our parents were boomers and like, it's all intergenerational how we deal with money. Um, I know specifically for me, it definitely is. But if you can have those really in-depth, honest conversations with your partner early on while you're engaged and you can come to some compromises and some concessions on how you get married, that can bode really well for your communication um, after you're married. And that's not just us saying it. Like there are actual statistics out there that couples that don't talk about money before they get married have a higher rate of divorce than couples that do. So we really want to encourage people to just start having those, like that honest dialogue, especially around something that's as contentious as money. Big time. And I would say even other areas of marriage that, you know, when you're starting at your life together in a couple, and I would never purport to be a relationship expert. I, I just happen to marry a really, really, really awesome person. Um, but when we think about the engagement period, it's often, what do we ask people? Did you set a date? Where are you getting married? What are you going to wear? When the reality is like couples should be using their engagement period to get to know themselves as individuals. Like what kind of spouse do I want to be and what kind of marriage do I want to have? So I have a friend who God love her, um, had a very short, uh, fun marriage but joke that she didn't know her husband didn't recycle and that he was like a capital R Republican. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's problematic. <laughs> yeah. Right. No so political we, talks we, before, I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because it's so easy to be swept up in the romance. And my God, I love romance. I'm such a romantic. And once those gears kick in, there's not a lot of space for that. Like if you're to, you know, thumb through a bridal magazine, there's probably not going to be um, at least the last time I did a lot of editorial content devoted to how to have a really successful marriage. But the reality is like, that's what your engagement period is for. Like, how are you going to treat your finances? What are your shared goals? Do you want kids? What role does faith play in your life? Are you going to church or synagogue? Like who's going to cook and clean and do laundry? Like you, when you're merging two lives, like God, it's messy and it's really hard. Mm -hmm. So we want couples to use that time. In addition to planning a wedding that feels like them, that's a blast off good time to really use that engagement period to pick away at all those things. So you're not stumbling through that in the first year, two, three, five years of your marriage. Mm. There's so much pressure, right? Like, as you just said, like we spent a lot of more time focusing on the wedding day and not the marriage, but it's, I really feel like there's so much pressure. I mean, even back and possibly more, I'm not sure, but back 21 years ago when I was getting married, like pressure from the family to do specific things, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I had an experience where I didn't want children at my wedding and I had a relative who really wanted children at my wedding. And so there was a little bit of, uh, you know, debate about that. And I, I held my ground. And at the end of the night, she was like the last person on the dance floor, like, thank God my kids are in here, you know? So, um, <laughs> but there, that was like so stressful. I mean, that among all the other things that you're going through, because it is really like, if you, you know, you're engaged in your weddings the next year, it's a year of it, of planning yeah. and obsessing. And that's all you talk about. Right. And I just think like with the families involved, I liked your story about, um, Tess and Peter in the book who, um, oh, you know, yeah. they pared down and, um, I, I think that they were a couple who just did it on their own and that the, um, the officiator said, just look at each other in each other's eyes, right? Because it's really just you here and it's just all about you. And when we think about that, that's preparing for marriage. That's 
yeah. getting you. It's not about the performance of the wedding, right? And so I think their story is happened in COVID, right? And so how has COVID, you know, taken pressure off of families or changed the way people are doing weddings? Obviously, people aren't doing weddings as well, but they're doing them really differently. So it has, like maybe maybe we can say like COVID was almost like a savior for people who wanted to have their own, their weddings their own way. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I would say, unfortunately, Julie, like I don't think that um, intergenerational pressure has gone anywhere. Like I love that you called out Tessa and Peter. Michelle actually interviewed them for the book. They're one of I don't know, three dozen couples that are featured, and there's some like super romantic happy weddings, and then there's some like some grit and people talk about things. And um, one of the other couples um, profiled in the wedding, her mother-in-law basically like takes over the wedding mm -hmm. um, in a way that uh, the couple found quite hurtful. But uh, at the end of it says, don't worry, you'll have a daughter on one day and then you'll have your day. This mm -hmm. idea that like you mm -hmm. can live vicariously through your daughter, which is pretty fucked up. Um, yeah. But I, I, I'm of the mind like the pandemic uh, is giving couples like an alternate script in a way that I personally find really exciting because the micro weddings that we're seeing are like drop dead romantic. They're oh, super so lovely. They're far more affordable. Uh, and there's a kind of a break and a breather from the pomp. And Julie, Julie used the word performance, this performative nature, right? And I think that's, that's so awesome. And I don't think that's going away anytime soon. Michelle, what do you think? Yeah, I don't think so at all. I, I always um, reference the same wedding because I, I found it so incredible. But Elaine Welteroth was, is the former um, editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue, and she's now a, a host on The Talk, the talk show down in the U.S. And her wedding, I just think it was like the epitome of cool. So she they had planned like a bigger wedding, I think in June of last year. And then in May, instead, they shifted their budget so that they could do this really awesome like floral archway to go inside the door of their brownstone. They were living in Brooklyn. Um, she grabbed a white dress out of the back of her closet. She had got a pair of really awesome kick-ass heels because she had a friend who designs uh, shoes. And they got married under this floral archway and it was like a socially distanced wedding. They had a DJ and then they just had like a street party. Mm. And I just think that is so cool. And really just goes to, to show that like, you can sort of focus your money where, what you want to be like the accent. So for my husband and I, it was, you know, we really wanted food, a great food, a great DJ. And that was kind of it, you know, like those were our two main things. And I think with COVID and with the pandemic, Karen has said this often, like the pandemic has kind of pushed weddings like over the precipice. Like there was this, this kind of call for change already starting to happen. Um, but now with the pandemic, you can kind of see how couples can make it work on a more intimate, maybe romantic, um, a level that is just more true to who they are. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it goes back to, to just kind of like talking and negotiating. And, you know, you talked, Julie, you talked about that pressure from family. We also talked to a negotiation expert in the book who gives some really awesome tips on how to have those conversations with your family. If your family is expecting a big, you know, church affair or just a really big affair and that's not what you want, you know, COVID is now a talking point where you can be like, well, you know what, this just doesn't vibe with us. And because of the pandemic, it's not something that, you know, we want to do. Or you can go the positive side and just be like, we can be innovative with this. We can have a virtual portion of the wedding so that people that are not close by or people that don't feel safe because of the pandemic, they can virtually call in and then we can have some people live. So I do think that will be something that um, proliferates the wedding industry after COVID has come and gone, where we can be a bit more creative with technology and include people that maybe can't spend the money, can't travel for whatever reason, but they can still be there at least for something, some portion of the wedding. Um, so I think there are, yeah, there are a lot of positives to how the pandemic is going to shake out uh, thing or shake things up in the wedding industry. 
what um, you're just describing, I really love that example that Julie brought to the table because there's something so intimate about just looking in your partner's eyes, right? And I, I mm -hmm. think that that's a part of our culture. We just keep ourselves so busy because we're scared of that intimacy, right? Yeah. Um, and so I love that idea of COVID helping to facilitate that intimacy. Um, you also touched on, you know, COVID maybe meaning that your great relative from New Zealand doesn't fly all the way to Canada for your wedding. And there's, you know, ethic, there's environmental implications to that too. Mm -hmm. And earlier you spoke about how there is pressure when you get married to just, let's just forget about the environment for a few, <laughs> a few for one day and we'll, we'll deal yeah. with that later. So, you know, what are your thoughts around um, designing a wedding that's environmentally in line with your values? I think it's really important. Um, Karen and I were part of a group of women. We all got married close to each other and we called it the sisterhood of the traveling candles. So I think I'm pretty <laughs> sure Karen and I had the same vases and candles at our weddings. Um, we decorated things a little bit differently, obviously, because they were to our liking, but there are ways to do it. There are a lot of forums now that are, you know, repurposed um, like event stuff that you can use. There's a, I know there's a Facebook group. I think there's even someone was telling us, oh, I remember who now, someone was telling us that this is their like next side project is that they want to create kind of an online marketplace of um, reusable like wedding stuff. So whether that's yeah. like phases and, you know, centerpiece, like, you know, anything centerpiece wise, like whatever it is, there's going to, this is going to start to be a business just like it is in yeah. fashion, like rentals um, and, and vintage, all that stuff. So they're, that's kind of coming. And I think, yeah, I think it's really important. I think it's so exciting. And in addition to like, I love, and I, Michelle and I are like knowingly locking eyes because we know the mutual friend who's starting this business yeah. idea and it's going to be epic. Um, but also like engagement rings, right? If you yeah. think about sustainability, like that's, that's a really loaded thing is um, conflict diamonds. So we talk a lot in the book about alternatives to that and whether that's recycled diamonds or vintage pieces or even just foregoing that entirely. The other piece um, that's a, a less green and a sort of dirty side of the business is wedding dresses, which are like, to me, this is like pink washing of the highest order that women are being asked to pay five figures for a dress that if it were in any other color, and in any other store would literally be a fraction of the price. And a lot of wedding dresses, um, if you're not a savvy shopper, you'll find our native polyester. Polyester is plastic. It's never going to go anywhere. It's going to end up in a landfill. And we're wearing uh, it So once. there's a, for like seven hours, right? For the pleasure of what, eight, $9,000. It's outrageous. Um, so we, we really explore a couple options um, for alternate ways to shop for your wedding outfits more sustainably. Um, and, and jewelry too is a piece that's really important to Michelle and I, and also flowers. Yeah. Florals are mind numbingly expensive. I love fresh flowers. They're super beautiful. Um, but for couples that are looking at their budget and are, you know, flying in flowers from Denmark, like, come on, like it's, it's a, it's a great opportunity to get real. Mm -hmm. mentioned diamonds so tell us about because you know I, I'm not sure if I'm dating myself but I've already mentioned that I was married 21 years ago so whatever <laughs> uh, but you know Leonardo DiCaprio was in that movie Blood Diamond years and years ago and so some of us learned about how you know sure. um, unethical the the search for diamonds are and and now you know you can find the Canadian diamond or you, you talked about um, sort of fabricating diamonds that are actual diamonds yeah. but What's the history behind why there's a diamond engagement ring? Oh, I love this. Michelle, do you want to tell it? Or like we could both wax about this forever. Yeah, we can both talk about it. Um, it's just a brilliant marketing campaign from De Beers. The reason, <laughs> you know, diamonds actually aren't that rare. I mean, the blood diamond thing, it makes it seem like it is so, but. But diamonds are forever. <sighs> yeah, that diamonds are forever campaign came out and it was, was, it was post-World War II, right, Karen? That's right. right. Yeah. Came like out. Yeah. Late 30s, um, when diamond rings or diamond sales were sort of plummeting. Um, in 1947, the phrase a diamond forever was coined, and it was a ploy to sell diamond engagement rings. Um, and there was this like really brilliant marketing strategy, like the original influencer strategy that celebrities were seated. These Hollywood starlets were given product seeds uh, to wear a diamond engagement ring. People were going into high schools to teach people about the four C's of diamonds. Like 
things that just really make your head spin. Um, and that stuck. Uh, and even now, you know, four, four decades later, um, advertising budgets for diamond engagement rings are ubiquitous. Like we see them all the time. I just got my issue of Vanity Fair the other day. And of course, Tiffany's is in the book with the beautiful ring. Like it's diamond rings have become synonymous with engagements when the reality is like, this is a total post-World War II construct. Generations before that, people did not get engaged with a diamond solitaire ring. From a marketing point of view, it's brilliant, right? Like I'm just totally. the campaign is brilliant that it's lasted this long and had such a profound effect. But it does make you think, you know, is this is this what I want to be adopting for myself? We so we're, we've talked about the perfect ring, the perfect day, um, the perfect social media pictures. Um, but there's also the pressure on the bride to be perfect, right? And there's a stat you had lots of stats in your book, but you know, one stat Psychology Today reported that almost half of brides to be we're targeting the ideal wedding weight that was t- on average 20 pounds less mm. than their current weight, right? So that's a yeah. lot of women trying to lose weight for one day. So, so tell us your thoughts on this and what you learned about this part of the wedding industry. Mm. Uh, it's pretty harrowing, right? Like, and I, I know a couple of us on the call here, you have daughters, I have a son, but I would be pretty horrified if he was receiving a message that on the day that you're supposed to be starting your life with someone who loves you for you and because you're perfect, that you have to fundamentally change how you look. That's, that's really problematic. Um, and you referenced a stat, there's another from Cornell University uh, that 70% of engaged women were planning to lose weight. Like it's just sort of synonymous with engagements that you do like the bridal diet or you, the hashtag um, Shedding for the wedding, wedding, right? Like things that are just, again, we've normalized it, but when you pick it apart, it's really, it's really gross and really uncomfortable. And of course, deeply unhealthy. The idea of losing weight for an eight hour party to look really good in photos is really, really wrong. Um, And we talk a lot about, about body image issues in the book and the message that women are sent and no one seems to be saying like, I'm not okay with that. So Michelle, our hope was that by raising a hand and saying like, we think this is really messed up. This is really problematic. Societally, we're not sure why we're participating in this. We really want other women to tamp down on that too and feel not only like permitted, but encouraged to totally subvert that. And on your wedding day, you should look your most like yourself, right? And feel most like yourself, not... Um, not this like thinned up different manufactured version of yourself. We profile um, this couple on the wedding, a really lovely same sex couple that we interviewed and I'm blanking on their names, but one was totally committed to wearing this jacket that he had made in a size smaller. And I've heard of women buying their wedding dress one size smaller is incentive to like really make sure they lost, you know, lose the last eight, 10 pounds, whatever. So this guy is like living off of green juice, like doing a hardcore cleanse before the wedding so he can fit into his jacket. And his partner just basically said, enough, you are no fun. You used to be so much fun to be around. We used to like go to restaurants and dine out and like share a bottle of wine. And this guy was just like grumpy and miserable because he was fucking starving for the months leading up to his wedding, subsiding off of green juice. And his partner was like, this isn't who you are. This isn't who I want to marry. So we, sorry for, for using a cuss word, but I felt no, like that's that really fine. It, it deserved it. It deserved it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I really want to put a fine point on that, that um, it's not okay to treat people like projects and to treat their bodies like projects to fit a mold. Mm-hmm. It's not a place for punishment. There's just so much so, messaging. Yeah. So much bad messaging. Yeah. There's, we, we talk about this in the book too. There's one woman that inserted a feeding tube two weeks before yeah. her wedding so that oh she wasn't gosh. eating solid food so that she could lose the last like 10 pounds. Like that's, yeah. that is so over the top unnecessary. Um, yeah. It, it just needs to be pointed out how, how awful that is. Well, and we, we respond to it with like, Oh my God, but it's probably more common than we think. Right. I want to just go back to, you were talking about the same sex couple and I wonder how, you know, because a lot of the issues we're talking about are about women or women taking on the role of having to do the wedding or it being all about them. And, 
you know, there's the LGBTQ, uh, you know, community and, you know, they may be doing things differently or have different issues for a while they couldn't even get married. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so I wonder how that differentiates and what, what um, some of the sort of, I don't know, traditions that, you know, might cross over in terms of, um, you know, same sex marriages as a, or weddings, as opposed to, um, you know, a man and a woman um, and, and the woman having all these sort of patriarchal influences. Yeah. I think, oh, sorry, yeah, I think that's so, that's so nuanced. It's really, it's really tough to say because I think the idea that even if you're a gay couple, there's like a man and a woman in the relationship is so heteronormative. It's, it's really tough to, to kind of talk about. And us as, you know, cisgendered women, it, it is, you know, it's harder. So that's why we tried to include as much diversity in the book as we could um, and have people tell their stories and their sides of it. Um, I think in a way it kind of does go back to what we're saying. Like if you are a gay couple and you want to have white in your wedding, go for it. But if you don't want to, you don't have to. It really is about the individual couple. I think, and I hope that some couples who are of are from the LGBTQ community, I hope that they don't feel like they have to prescribe to the white Western wedding. I hope that they feel that they can do things on their own um, and how they want to do it. Because as you mentioned, like they weren't allowed to get married until recently. So this rule book really shouldn't apply to them. But Mm -hmm. saying that we should start seeing more representation in media. So there are some wedding websites now that are doing instead of how he proposed, they're doing how they proposed. So, mm-hmm. it, you know, and that's kind of a long time coming. That's the bare minimum and, and brands and media brands and wedding uh, industry brands in general need to do better um, because there are a lot of people who don't see themselves represented in this industry. Mm. I went, um, as Michelle said, like we, we come at it from our perspective, which is heterosexual cisgendered women. So I wouldn't, certainly wouldn't want to speak on behalf of anybody but it, it felt critical, like it was, a, it was an absolute non-negotiable for Michelle and I, when we set out to write the book that we weren't just writing a book about heterosexual weddings. And like, it felt important that we wanted to hold space for people to tell their own stories. In one of the most jaw-droppingly beautiful books, or pardon me, weddings in the book, uh, is a couple from Utah, Cody and Turner, who work, Michelle's nodding because they're just like, they're the most attractive couple. It's not even genetically fair. They're so, so, so good looking. (laughs) Um, They work in fashion and beauty. They had this like stunning wedding. Um, You have to read about it. It's super, super beautiful. But they shared that um, being gay and being based in Utah was exceptionally difficult to navigate because there were no resources. They couldn't go to a newsstand and pick up a magazine and see themselves represented. And they managed to find a book, I think it was called Getting Groomed, but it was intended for heterosexual groups, right? So it had like some good pointers around like attire. Anyways, they ended up totally doing their own thing. And the results are draw-droppingly gorgeous uh, and the most romantic wedding and the most lovely couple. Um, So I think that we can hopefully help encourage other people to find themselves represented. And even, you know, it's not my story, it's not Michelle's story, but by including those um, weddings in the book. We hope that people see themselves. There were, what, what I'm hearing from you guys is just, um, you know, you can have two sane adults, um, but something about this wedding industrial complex just kind of can suck you in, right? Where you start to, who cares about the environment, our finances, my body, whatever, yeah. anything goes for the sake of the wedding. And when what I'm hearing you say is, okay, you know what, you don't have to get caught up in this, you can still stay true to who you are through this process. And Michelle, at the beginning, you mentioned that there were a couple parts of your own wedding where you felt a little bit icky about some things. Um, And so I'm Mm -hmm. I'm curious if whether both of you might share, um, you know, what you might have done differently, or, you know, where you might have gotten caught up and wished you hadn't, if you're open to sharing anything Mm -hmm. along those lines. Yeah, I totally went over budget on my dress. And, uh, I had a a dress designed uh, custom 
inspired by my grandmother's wedding dress. So when my grandma married my grandfather in the 1940s, she wore this really awesome, just below the knee kind of like form fitting shift dress with a white suit jacket. She had this jaunty little hat on and these really kick-ass heels. Um, so I really took that as inspiration, but going back to the money question, I'm terrible. I'm getting better. I was terrible with money. So I didn't really ask how much it was going to cost because I kind of didn't want to know. I was like, "Ah, I don't want to know. It's just going to be what it's going to be and whatever. And it ended up being double what I imagined. Um, I still didn't pay $10,000 for my dress. Don't like that. Yeah. That didn't happen, thankfully. Um, But I think, yeah, if I had just been a bit more confident in, in just having that ability to kind of ask those questions and know what I was getting myself into, I mean, it all worked out. It's fine. And I've worn the jacket, I think once I need to try and wear it again though. Um, but yeah, like if I had just been a bit more confident, a bit more self-assured, I would have asked those questions and I wouldn't have felt so icky afterward. Um, there was also, you know, because I wore something that wasn't seen as traditional, I had some comments from some people, um, when to me, I was like, what is more traditional than a dress from the 1940s or like an outfit from the 1940s? Mm. Um, I thought it was quite traditional. So, but uh, yeah, that's kind of the only, that's one of the things. I, I didn't, uh, there wasn't anything I regret about my wedding or that I would have done differently. And I say that not from a place of hubris, like, um, but I'm really proud of how, like I was honest with myself and really gut check myself throughout the process and having good friends like Michelle certainly helps, right? Like those really honest conversations about like, man, I'm not going on a diet mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm not going to blow my budget. Cause I am on like a 10 year plan to do X. Like I, I was really proud of myself for how I navigated that. I don't think I had the vocabulary and the understanding. I certainly couldn't have forecasted. I was going to write a book a couple years later about it. The hardest piece for me. And I didn't know what I didn't know was, um, that your wedding, it's not just yours, right? Like you're, you're, of course you're marrying your, your partner and hopefully that's rock solid, but you're marrying into a family and you're marrying into dynamics and your mom might have feelings about your wedding. And I don't think I was as patient as I probably should have been. Uh, and I, my mom, God love her, like was just so happy to be there. Her health was not amazing at the time, but I think I was so committed to just like doing it our way that I wish I had maybe given my mom a bit more breathing room, you know, to be involved. Uh, and she's making up for it in spades now that she's a grandmother. Um, <laughs> but at the time I, I didn't, I didn't know that. So I think what I, what I was approaching it is just being really like buttoned down and I work in marketing. So I like, I events are my jam. And it was really important that my, my now husband and I were making decisions jointly. Like it was absolutely not the bride show. It was things that we did together but I wish that maybe I just made it a little bit more space for, for the people around us who were just so, so excited for us, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're, you both mentioned um, at the beginning about you being feminists, you know, hearing you speak, knowing what you know now and, and your sort of conviction to write this book. I'm curious about where this sort of courage to break through societal, you know, limitations comes mm-hmm. from and, you know, if you had influences when you were growing up or, you know, where does this sense of assuredness in this area come from for each of you? <laughs> it's a, a tough question. question. It's, yeah. I mean, I, I did my degree in women's studies, so I had sort of flirted with the idea of going back and pursuing a master's uh, about the performative nature of weddings and the pressure put on women to play a part. Uh, but I think it really like the the confidence or the moxie, I'll say the moxie to go write the book really came from our friends. Like Michelle and I share a social, a social circle and what we, what we thought was our unique experience. Uh, and Michelle, I don't want to speak on your behalf. So you let me know. Um, but we realized it was a shared experience and that the more women we talked to, they're like, Oh yeah. Like that happened to me too. And like, I felt like shit when I left that bridal store and this person assumed I was on a diet. Like, so the more we picked away at that, we realized that there was something here. So I think it was, you know, a sisterhood of people uh, saying like, yeah, you're onto something. But when it actually came to putting a pen to paper on the book, um, no, one, no one gave us permission. Like no one tapped us on the shoulder and said, 
Hey, you should go do this. And I, I endorse this. Like that was uh, the arrogance of our youth. Uh, we joke that like short of having a kid, the most egotistical thing you can do is write a book, right? Like to like <laughs> put your name on something and say, these are my ideas. You should part with your money uh, and buy my book. Like there's, it takes a certain amount of um, like you just hold hands and jump, but it was really, for me, it was really the opportunity to like shine a spotlight on something that I thought was uh, societally important and to help, um, encourage other people to pick away at something for the sake of it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It really was hearing other people tell very similar stories that we were like, okay, like something needs to be done. And if we can do something to help other people, let's do it. Um, for me, like I've, I've worked in the fashion editorial side of magazines, um, for a long time now. So I can say that I have definitely been part of the problem. Um, and I wanted to, yeah, I just, as I got into my thirties and it kind of goes back to what I said at the beginning, like early mid thirties found my person wanted, you know, we want to celebrate the two of us. And then all of a sudden people are telling us what to do. Like it just didn't just really didn't vibe with, with where I was at in life. Um, and yeah, luckily I had Karen to kind of depend on and then, and then write the book with like, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't have done this without her. Um, so yeah, I think it was just us trying to give people advice, our friends advice, trying to be supportive um, you know, I didn't take all of the advice myself on my wedding, but yeah, it really was just to kind of show solidarity in this one area that we thought needed to be overhauled. Do you see a time like when you were younger that this was like who you were, like you were this person way, even way back when, like maybe yeah. when you were a little kid or even in high school, like, you know, there was something in you that had this spark of pushing against, you know, what society wanted you to do? Was there, or like, you know, for me, it was Oprah, but maybe like, was there a person in your life who influenced you to, to have this sort of within you forever? It could be Elsa. For me, yeah. For me, it was my grade six uh, teacher. So there was a boy who was teasing me and he wouldn't stop tickling me and I kicked him in the nuts and I didn't get in trouble because oh, wow. she told me, she was like, Nope, he was bothering you. He should not have been doing that. And now I see that that's not always the case that girls are often, you know, girls often get in trouble for standing up for themselves. Um, but this one teacher, Mrs. Strawn, I loved her. Um, yeah, she was like, no, he bothered you and you should 100% have stood up for yourself. That's amazing. So, so there were, there are little he's moments just flirting like with you. So many times we hear he's just flirting yeah. with you. Yeah. He just whatever. wants your attention. Yeah. He's doing that because yeah. he likes you. No, he's not. Yeah. He's doing that because he's being a jerk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's empowering. God love that teacher. Um, I like since every report card, probably since the first grade, I've had like Karen has problems with authority on every report card. So I'm, <laughs> um, so I'm not I'd, like, I think when I told my mom about the book, she wasn't like, oh, that's a huge surprise dear. Like it was like, ah, yeah, there's something like defiant in, in this. So I think it's that notion is totally on brand for me. Uh, and I've been really rich in both men and women around me um, coming up in my career, but even like growing up, I was a tomboy. Uh, so I was fully encouraged to ask hard questions. Uh, and particularly, as I mentioned, like academically, I was steeped in this in my undergrad. So really looking at why women are pressured to do the things that we do and who benefits from it. So, um, for me, it was like this alignment of like my personal values my interest as a marketer, like I'm fascinated by the machine. That's the wedding industry. There's nothing else like it. Like the sheer scale of it is staggering. Um, but then also like we wanted to, I remember when Michelle and I, we, we got a beer on a patio when we were first, when we could have a beer on a patio, that makes me surprise. <laughs> Years ago, and we said like, we wanted a tone in this book that felt like a cool older sister, like someone who's done it, who can help you out, but is not going to wag a finger in your face and tell you how to do things. So hopefully... Hopefully we hit the mark. 
One of the questions we like to ask our guests is, um, what's your afterglow? And so what's the big future vision you're working towards for the next, let's say 10 to 30 years, anywhere you want to ballpark it in there, but you know, what's really calling towards you and what are you, you have, what are you growing into? What's next for you? I am halfway through my second year of a five-year program and I am completely switching careers. So I'm studying to become a psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. uh, so that is my big goal at the moment is to uh, do well in school. Wow, <laughs> and, uh, and then I'm going to embark on a new career uh, when I am 45. So, so, yeah. so why, why did you decide to make that change? That's interesting. Um, well, I'm sure, I, I don't know if you guys would know or your audience would know, but the journalism landscape in Canada has really, really shifted, especially in the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, even just last week, you know, Huffington Post Canada was closed down and 75 people lost their jobs. Oh, I didn't know um, so it's been, it's been a tough go. Um, I love journalism and I love what journalism can do for people. Um, I loved being a journalist, but I was kind of over the hustle. Um, and I was over the, uh, not, I was over being freelance and, and feeling this like scarcity mentality. Um, and then I, I just really kind of went back to when I was a teenager and for me, it was about journalism or psychology. And I got really excited about journalism when I was doing like the yearbook program at my school and I was writing captions and doing layouts and all that stuff. Um, and then, yeah, I just had kind of like a, a aha moment when I was running one day and I just was like, I need to go back to school. Um, and I, I figured it out and I made it happen. And yeah, now I'm in my second year. Oh, that's the perfect example of finding your afterglow right there. Yeah. What about you, Karen? Courage too. Oh, I can't follow that. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> um, my afterglow is that I don't know what it is. And I'm so here for that. I spent my, I spent my teens and my twenties, like really worrying about how I was micromanaging every aspect of my life to the point where I like, I think I sucked the joy right out of it. Um, so I did things a little backwards. So I'm now just like uh, easing up and seeing what life has in store for me. So uh, I just turned 40. I'm enormously pregnant with my second child, which is awesome and nothing I could have predicted in my 20s. So I think what I'm most looking forward to in that long-term view is not knowing what I'm going to do because there's something so exciting and freeing about that, especially coming out of a time where I don't know about you guys, but the pandemic rocked me to my core, mm -hmm. like everything that I thought I knew about my life uh, and my trajectory, it just, it threw everything into question. Mm -hmm. So I'm not holding too tightly onto things right now for the first time in my life. And I'm really, really enjoying that. Mm, I love that. That's my I answer, non-answer. It is yeah. a beautiful answer. It's totally an answer. And I love it. Where can we learn more about the book? Where can we go? Can we, where, where can we direct our listeners to learn more? Yeah, so we have set up an Instagram account for the book. It's just at the new wedding book. Um, and on there, there's a, a link tree link where all the different places you can buy it. It comes out in Canada on April 20th and then in the US on May 18th. Um, yeah. And then both our social media handles, we are spamming all of our people with <laughs> stuff right now. Sorry, yeah. not sorry. Um, yeah. Did I miss anything, Karen? No, it's, it's, we're so fortunate that it's wherever you like to buy your books. You can, yeah. you can find it. Um, I, this is one thing that I didn't mention, but I love this list of things to get rid of receiving lines. Here's your yeah, answer. Perfect waste of time. Literally no one likes them. I love no one that. likes them. That's like, no you're, like them. you're saying, that's your big sister voice, right? Mm, yep. The garter toss. Okay, we already covered that. Vulgar. First dance, right? Really? Awkward. An entire song where people are just staring at you and you're kind <laughs> of not actually like in love with each other. It's totally performative. Okay. Yeah. Kissing on demand. Stop it. Stop clinking the glasses. Like pigeons in it. the park. Don't do it. Okay, sides yeah. for seating, like bride side, groom yeah. side, gross. Add to us. No, Favors. you're a blended family now. Mm -hmm. Just no, I love that. Yeah. Right, not seeing each other the night before the wedding. Honestly, I never even thought about that. And even in a movie, if the bride and the groom see each other before the wedding, I always get really uncomfortable. But now really? I'm like, 
Yeah, because that's what the messaging. Remember, yeah. I was married 21 years ago. Okay. Well, yeah. a lot of times people live very with their much spouse or their partner, right? You're living with your partner. Yeah. You're, yeah, I feel you're like living you're living together. With your you don't actually have anywhere now. else to go. And why does your husband <laughs> want to go sleep on their buddy's couch? Like, you yeah. know, they don't want that. It's ridiculous. No. Okay, yeah. You guys t- totally, I wish that I was in that book because I had so many things happen. Mm. Yeah. No. And you'd think things would have changed, right? Or that the edges would be sanded down, but they're not, Julie. No. Like, I think the pressure on couples now is, I don't know what it was like 21 years ago, but it sounds like it wasn't always a cakewalk. I think these days it's extrapolated. Mm-hmm. Like, well, and I don't even they, know if I would get married, right? Like, like that's another question, yeah. which Liz and I were talking about before you guys came on is like, what about going back to, do you even want to get married? Because marriage yeah. itself is a construct mm-hmm. yeah, right? That's right. that is, was based on a man owning a woman like that mm-hmm. the yes. construct there exists yeah do we even need that anymore mm-hmm. yeah. yeah to what end exactly. right and we yeah, yeah we do write about that and at the end we write about like our sort of closing thoughts on her is because people are diehard romantics and everyone yeah. loves the wedding right it's mm-hmm. everyone loves the wedding and it's extremely well written and you Thank know what you. I really Thank love you. is that you're you're making us ask questions and just really bringing home the message that just because we've done things a certain way doesn't mean we have to keep doing it that way and I think that's the big theme right that's one of the big yeah. themes that's coming out of COVID right everything every part of our institution society should be re-examined and you know we looked at and it's time to build new traditions so so thank you for doing that when it comes to the wedding industry and thank you for being here today thank you so much for having us so beautifully said yeah cheers to doing things in a new way yeah I'm not even sure if you have all heard about the Richards Group real estate agency located in the beaches of Toronto. And they service the beaches, but they also service all over Toronto and beyond. And one of the reasons I want to bring it up is because, A, not only are they sponsoring this episode, but I also want to bring it up because I've worked with them numerous times. And I really want to emphasize what an incredible all-round company, business, family that they are, and so incredible to work with in all of your moving needs, whether you're buying or selling your home, they have specialization in design, they are experts in the market, and they will cater to whatever it is that you are looking for, whether to buy or to sell. So have a look at them. Their website is insidetorontorealestate.com. That's a wrap for this episode of The Afterglow yet another courageous Canadian sharing her vision. Do us a favor and lift a sister up by sharing this podcast with others who want to find their afterglow. And let us know, what do you want to hear about? Who do you want to hear from? And what is your afterglow? Slide on into our DMs at The Afterglow Podcast Official and leave us a message. Did you love this podcast? Be sure to like and rate us on Spotify and iTunes and wherever you tune in. Until next time.